Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we'll bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Happy holidays, and welcome to a very special Christmas edition of Heilman and Haver. In a few moments, we'll be joined by Jeremy Arnold, author of TCM's Christmas in the Movies, 30 Classics to Celebrate the Season. We're so excited for you to hear Jeremy, we decided to launch this episode a few days early. Plus, we wanted to make sure you had time to go out and find yourself a copy of Jeremy's book. It's one you'll definitely want to keep close every holiday season and get under the tree this year for your favorite movie buff. There are so many wonderful Christmas films in Jeremy's book that we decided to dedicate this week's In the Mix episode to them. This Wednesday, December 23rd, join us on YouTube as Matt and I discuss our top five favorites from the book, share some trivia, and sample a selection of eggnogs. And it's not too late to win a copy of Christmas in the Movies, along with Jeremy's latest from TCM, The Essentials Volume 2, 52 More Must-See Movies and Why They Matter. Just subscribe to the show wherever fine podcasts are found and you'll be entered into the drawing. We'll announce the winner on Christmas Day on Facebook and Twitter. And while you're on Twitter, make sure to follow our guest Jeremy Arnold at at JT underscore ARN. Jeremy is an author, film historian, and commentator. His new book, The Essentials Volume 2, 52 More Must-See Movies and Why They Matter, was recently published by Running Press and Turner Classic Movies. It is his second companion book to TCM's long-running Essentials program, which profiles the most vital and influential movies in film history. In addition to the two Essentials books and the book we'll be discussing today, Christmas in the Movies, Jeremy has written Lawrence of Arabia, the 50th Anniversary, two essays in The Call of the Heart, John M. Stahl and Hollywood Melodrama, contributions to Janine Basinger's 2003 edition of the World War II combat film, Anatomy of a Genre, numerous essays and liner notes for home entertainment releases, including four Frank Capra titles and over 600 programming articles to date for the Turner Classic Movies website. Jeremy's extensive commentating work includes 14 audio commentaries for the Blu-ray or DVD release of classic films, most recently Kiss the Blood Off My Hands and The Lavender Hill Mob from 1948 and 1951 respectively, and stints as a guest host on TCM with Ben Mankiewicz. He joins us today from his home in sunny Los Angeles. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Yeah, we've been we've been looking forward to this one uh, ever since we got it got it scheduled. So, uh, just uh, right off the top, so Jeremy, you've got a relationship with with TCM Turner Classic Movies as an author, guest, contributor. How did this partnership come about? Well, it started back in. Uh... 2002 or 2003, when I started writing for the TCM website, just as a, as a freelance contributor and uh, started writing those 600 articles that you mentioned there. So you know, on the TCM website, you can find programming articles that go into the backgrounds and the makings of a lot of the movies that they show on the channel. Uh, I also did DVD and Blue, uh, Blu-ray reviews and festival coverage and things like that. And I still contribute those things to the, to the TCM website, not as much as in the past. But anyway, that kind of let, um, I, I kind of became part of the TCM family through, through doing that. And when they started doing their line of books with Running Press a few years ago, it just was sort of a natural fit. And I did one of the first ones that they did, which was the first Essentials volume. And uh, I've done two more. So it's, uh, it's just sort of grown organically from those first website pieces. Was your background uh, prior to TCM in film? I mean, so obviously you, you say you were a freelance writer. What, was, what kind of led to, led to that? 
Is this something you've always been interested in? Yeah, um, I, I studied film and filmmaking at Wesleyan University and uh, made some short films and came out to L.A. wanting to make films, but also wanting to write about them because I always loved classic Hollywood, that era, and was always fascinated in exploring how how those movies and those filmmakers, really the, the masters, like how how they created modes of storytelling and formed different relationships with audiences in their movies, in their storytelling. The, those kinds of things really fascinate me, how, how different films and filmmakers create emotion in audiences in totally different ways. And I have had many jobs in LA when I first came out here, but I eventually fell into freelance writing. I contributed to the Movie Maker Magazine for several years, uh, Premiere Magazine, uh, the Directors Guild of America magazine, then websites, and uh, and then TCM. I think I just I think I knew someone at TCM and wanted to be connected to them because I you know I loved the classic period of Hollywood, so it seemed like a good fit. Sure, and we're both big fans too. And uh, Greg and I went out, and as soon as we booked the interview with you, Jeremy, we ran out and got the Kindle version of of the book we're going to be discussing today, uh, Christmas in the Movies: Thirty Classics to Celebrate the Season. Uh, in your introduction, uh, before you start breaking down the individual films that you chose, you, you talk a little bit about how Christmas movies uh, date back really to the dawn of cinema. Could you tell us a little about uh, a little bit about when the first Christmas movie was made, and, and and maybe expound a little bit on what it is about Christmas as opposed to other holidays uh, that makes it, um, like you say again in your introduction, not just a backdrop, um, but almost like a character in its own right in a lot of these movies. Sure. Uh, as far as I know, the first Christmas movie or movie you could call one is called Santa Claus, which was made in 1898 by a British director named George Smith. And it's about five minutes long. You can find it on YouTube. Only about three and a half minutes survive. But for what it is, it's actually quite sophisticated. It has double exposure. It has sort of two narrative time frames going on in the same frame. Um, it's, it's, it's a fun little clip, <laughs> practically. Um, they're the first version of A Christmas Carol was made, I think in 1901, just three years later, which was also 10 or 15 minutes long at most. And I think just a little bit of that survives. In any event, there were movies in the silent era that had Christmas themes or settings, but they don't really fall into the category of Christmas movies in the way that we think of that concept today. That, that really started in the sound era and really hit its peak in the 40s, I would say. I think that what, what makes Christmas a good uh, setting and storytelling device for movies as opposed to other holidays is that it's the most universal holiday. I mean, even people who aren't religious celebrate Christmas in a secular way, the trees and gifts and food and colors and shopping, the commercialism, of course. And the season it lends itself dramatically really well to, to storytelling of all kinds, including literature, because it encompasses both the highs and the lows of human experience, and which makes inherently for good drama, right? I mean, we all know Christmas is about friends and family and togetherness and families reuniting and celebrating and the joy of it. But it, Christmas is also about loneliness and despair and feeling left out, something all of us have experienced at some point in our lives during the holiday season. So, so that's very relatable as well. Sometimes you experience them both at the same time. So there are, what I found interesting about embarking on this book project was that 
it was a way of thinking about Christmas and Christmas movies through that prism of the highs and the lows. Most people just like to concentrate on the highs, but I think it's a little more interesting on a dramatic level to think about the whole range of, of those emotions. And they go to extremes. I mean, there are several movies, Christmas movies that have suicide or attempted suicide in them, which is the ultimate extension of loneliness and despair, right? So it, it's a pretty fascinating uh, subject matter. So you mentioned, and you, and you mentioned in the in the, the last answer there about about the 1940s and it really taking off. And I, I I believe about half of the films in your book were created during the 1940s. And obviously, you think back, you know, it, it makes sense the the messages of Christmas and and wartime and and coming off of the depression and things like that. Lately, we've seen a bit of a resurgence in in Christmas movies. In your opinion, do you think that this has come about as a result of things that are going on in the world or based on the kind of economy that we have now? Is it, is it more of a cashing in on a good thing, you know, kind of riding that horse till it breaks sort of thing? I think it's both. You know, Hollywood will always try and cash in on whatever has made money in the past. That's just how Hollywood has always been. And who can blame them? So, sure. I mean, these days and for the last decade or two, there's always a Christmas movie or two or five every year, you know, often maybe reaching for a, a pretty low common denominator. Most of them are um, pretty forgettable and don't really enter the realm of the kind of movie you want to revisit every year. In the 90s, certainly there was Elf and Love Actually and Bad Santa. They all came out in the same year. I'm sorry, uh, that was actually early 2000s, 2003. So I, I think that they come out every year just out of a commercial desire but I think what would make them catch on to the extent that Elf and Love actually did would be something going on in the culture that would make a Christmas movie particularly resonant and desired by a culture. And I think that we're about to enter a period of that. I would not be surprised if in two or three years we get another batch of you know, something on the order of Elf and Love, actually, because those movies came out a couple years after 9-11, a big national trauma. And we're now going through a worldwide trauma and we can't go to the movies at all. We all want to. And once we're able to again, I think we all will. And what would we want more than the shared experience of, of, uh, of what a Christmas movie can deliver, the, the warmth and the joy of it? So um, I would not be surprised at all. There's also, of course, the Lifetime and Hallmark <laughs> Christmas movies, but I think they're their own genre. I don't know that they really fall into this. So one thing Matt and I have talked about, I think almost in every episode, we talk to some of our guests about COVID and, and things like that, is looking forward to what comes out of it. And I think to your point, Jeremy, the screenplays and, and, and things and the stories that are going to come out as a result of uh, sitting around and being informed by what's going on and, and things like that are going to be um, something to look out for. Yeah. And, you know, I one thing that's kind of interesting is that another thing that uh, was very popular post-World War II was film noir. And that also came out of elements of the World War II era and displaced veterans coming back and having trouble fitting into society and the alienation that they felt. That film noir is all about that kind of alienation and doom and dread. And uh, you could see 
some modern equivalent of noir coming out in the next few years as well as a result of COVID. So maybe we'll get the ultimate film noir Christmas movie. That would be great. <laughs> and who would say no to an elf too, right? I know I wouldn't, as long as Bob Newhart's in it. Exactly. <laughs> so obviously the thematic elements of Christmas movies have changed drastically over the years and and maybe have gone, uh, you know, have have been fluid. You've seen, uh, you know, uh, back and forth as as society has dictated uh, what people want in a Christmas movie. Has there been a shift from more, uh, quote unquote, religious Christmas miracle type plot lines to more secular based uh, family gatherings, relationships, Santa Claus type related stories. And even like you said, with with the Hallmark and Lifetime uh, studios out there, a lot more romance. That's my wife's favorite. The Christmas with a little romance thrown in. Yeah, well, the the romance has been part of Christmas movies from the early sound era movies. I mean, you look at Remember the Night and Chop Around the Corner both uh, around 1940 and you know those are romances and the you know romance lent itself very well to christmas obviously and although even there you know uh, th those movies both have their darker sections and shop around the corner is even one of the ones that has a suicide attempt in it which is sort of a surprise to look back on because it's a sparkling lubitsch romantic comedy um but it does work it in and works it in pretty well but in terms of a shift from like religious to secular, I don't know. I mean, there are a few examples of Christmas movies uh, back in the studio era that maybe are a little more religiously centered, like The Bishop's Wife, the, the John Wayne Western Three Godfathers is sort of a religious parable. Uh, but even those, I mean, it, you don't really think of those as religious movies. They're, the, the Bishop's Wife is a wonderful Cary Grant, David Niven, you know, drama, a comedy drama uh, with a lot of Christmas trappings that is enjoyable sort of in a more traditional Christmas movie way, even though there is a religious current to it. And Three Godfathers is still a John Ford, John Wayne Western, a pretty good one, underrated actually. And I don't feel like the religious element sort of, you know, hits you over the head too hard. Most of the other Christmas movies around that time are not really religious at all. And over the years, it sort of pops, I guess it pops up more in the studio era. It was a more conservative time, I suppose, and the studio heads were. I think today, you know, with certain exceptions, because there are like, you know, faith-based production companies that gear themselves totally around that concept. But for a, a mainstream Hollywood movie wanting to become a big cultural hit and make a lot of money, you know, no, it's going to be Elf or Love Actually, something that is more secular as a Christmas film. So when we think of some of these uh, films and, and lately some of the more secular ones we're talking about, um, we kind of associate them with individuals, people that have kind of either repeated themselves in Christmas movies or are known for one or two that are just so, uh, so popular it's just they're they're part of the whole genre. And we're talking about people like, you know, Jimmy Stewart and, and Natalie Wood or Chevy Chase, Tim Allen as Santa Claus. Um, are there any actors who who made names for themselves in Christmas movies that, uh, you know, other than uh, or the appeared in one more than one holiday film? And do you think certain actors tend to lend themselves towards that more than other films and, and maybe why they might do that? Yeah, you know, the the actors you mentioned. Um, Alan and Stuart and the others. What I think what they all have in common is they all have a sort of like an everyman quality. You know, they're very relatable and they could just be an, an ordinary guy. 
And that does seem like it lends itself well to a Christmas movie where, especially if a character is undergoing some sort of crisis and trauma and rebirth and discovers the, you know, rediscovers the joy of the season and family and, and all that, which is really most Christmas movies are a variation on, on that kind of theme. So I think an everyman quality is good, but it does get interesting when you have a movie with say Robert Mitchum, um, who I would not call an everyman, <laughs> but he was in a great Christmas movie that I love called Holiday Affair, which is about a, a war widow played by Janet Lee, who is a single mother and she ends up having to choose between Wendell Corey and Robert Mitchum. No surprise, she chooses Robert Mitchum, but it, it's a very, it's a real charmer. And Mitchum is, a, is sort of against type in that film. And it, it, it sort of keeps our interest peaks because of it. In terms of actors who have been in more than one, you know, I can't think of that many, but Bing Crosby comes to mind because, uh, of course, he was in Holiday Inn and then White Christmas, which is sometimes called a remake of Holiday Inn. It wasn't really a remake, but it was a similar story that was also a way to use Irving Berlin songs. And in terms of an actor whose career was made by a Christmas movie, the only one that really comes to mind would be Macaulay Culkin for Home Alone, who, you know... I, I don't know that he's even really making movies anymore, but uh, he did, you know, have a career afterwards, but it's still, that is the one movie that we all will always remember him for. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so with, with Netflix and Amazon and all of these originals coming out, not to mention uh, networks like Hallmark and Lifetime, uh, the market can seem somewhat flooded. Uh, you turn on your streaming service and that's the first thing that pops up is all these, this litany of Christmas options um, do you think we can still, or do we still find that Christmas movies are being made uh, on par with the ones featured in your book, which uh, several are very lofty? I think of uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, you know, or do you think Hollywood has gone with, you know, quantity over quality? You know, and if so, other than just being market driven, why? Why do you think that is? Well, I hate to repeat myself, but I think this sort of comes back to what I was saying earlier about there will always be Christmas movies because they make money and people, there's always an audience that will love any movie that has any hint of Christmas in it. And that that's enough for them to call it a Christmas movie because everyone really defines that term in their own way. It's not really a genre. It's more of a storytelling mode that can pop up in any genre, I would say. So they'll always come out, but I really think it takes some something in the culture to really make a Christmas movie capture the imagination of the populace at large to turn it into a real, you know, elf-like event. And those movies, they sort of come in, in spurts and in waves and every, in cycles, every few years, there's one that kind of makes it into this list of movies that we then want to watch every year, you know, every year at Christmas time. Look, I mean, uh, you know, they've, They've come about for 80 years, so there's no reason to think they won't still come about. And in the meantime, Hollywood will still be, be pumping out movies that are simply set at Christmas, and that will satisfy a lot of people. Well, one of the debates around Christmas, maybe even one of the biggest debates around Christmas, even more than, you know, is Santa Claus real, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? I mean, you hear everybody's, everybody's got a stance on that. You took a stance on it in the book. You included it in your book of 30 uh, Christmas films. And there's a larger debate about what makes a Christmas film, because there's some that you can tell right away it's a Christmas film. Some Christmas is part of it, but kind of adjacent to the maybe the main storyline. Uh, and, and they're all over the map um, as far as that. So 
Um, along with with Die Hard, you included you know three Godfathers, uh, which we mentioned before. Billy Wilder's The Apartment, and even Gremlins. So, in producing this list, what criteria did you use to determine what exactly a Christmas movie is, and how did you settle on these thirty? That's a good question, because this is definitely not an encyclopedia. There are there are definitely more than thirty movies out there that are Christmas movies, and I believe me, I've heard from people, why isn't this in there? Why isn't that in there? And I, I hear you and I'm sorry, but that's just the way the, the book was sort of imagined. It, doing the book, actually, um, I didn't come up with the idea to do it. I had done the first Essentials book and my publisher and TCM, they decided they wanted to do a book on holiday movies. And the, my editor came to me with the idea. And um, at first I wasn't so sure because hadn't really given too much thought about Christmas movies over the years other than the way most people do. You know, I certainly enjoy, enjoy a few of them and like revisiting some every year, but then it occurred to me that it would be interesting to delve into what really is a Christmas movie. What makes one a Christmas movie? Cause as I said, it's not really a genre. So it was sort of an interesting like intellectual exercise in a sense, not that the book is intellectual. I, I don't think it really is. I mean, it doesn't over-intellectualize Christmas movies to the point of taking the enjoyment out of them, I, I hope. But I think it's an interesting concept to think about the fact that, you know, if someone thinks a Christmas movie is a movie, any movie with a scene of Christmas, that's their definition. If someone thinks it has to all be set on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, that's another definition. If it's one that you simply want to watch every year, Christmas time and never any other time of year, well, that's another definition. None of those really work for me because there's always some other movie that falls into a different category that has got to be a Christmas movie. So I came up with my definition, which was any movie in which the Christmas season, some aspect of the Christmas season plays a meaningful role in the story for the audience's experience of the story. And since Christmas time can mean, as I said, the highs and the lows of human experience, the joy, togetherness, and the loneliness and commercialism and cynicism, that, that means that there's an awful big variety of movies that have a Christmas theme or setting that you really could call Christmas movies. So because this book is for TCM, most of the movies are from the golden age of Hollywood, 30s, 40s, 50s, because that's the bread and butter of Turner Classic Movies. But we all wanted them to go a little bit into the modern era um, because you really can't not do that with uh, movies like uh, A Christmas Story and Home Alone in there. I mean, people would expect to see those in a book like this, and they they should. So we went up into the early 2000s, but it, this, most of the movies are from before 1960 um, because it's a TCM book. Uh, but um, I really wanted to showcase a really wide range of tones and genres and ma and make you know, ask people to maybe consider some movies through the prism of their Christmas mode and of storytelling and, you know, make a case for The Lion in Winter as a Christmas movie, which is set at Christmas and uses a lot of Christmas aspects in its storytelling, but a lot of people would never really think of that way. Or um, a Roy Rogers Western, Trail of Robin Hood, or the John Wayne Western, Three Godfathers. And of course, Die Hard. I also, I when the book came out, I wrote a column for the Hollywood Reporter specifically about Die Hard as a Christmas movie, sort of expanding on what I wrote in the book. And then I, I appeared at a screening with uh, the screenwriter Steve D'Souza, um, and we sort of had a little chat at the Cinematheque in Hollywood before a screening of it, which was very entertaining. And uh, yeah, Die Hard to me is not only a Christmas movie, but one of the best Christmas movies. 
sure it's it's violent blood is shed uh but it's a pretty cheerful action movie and it very consciously uses a lot of modes and tropes of the season and turns them into action movie variations and it may not have thought of itself as a quote unquote christmas movie when it was made but i don't know that we really thought of movies that way at all when it was made other than it's a wonderful life and miracle on 34th street it's a more modern concept this idea of the christmas movie in terms of consciously thinking of a movie as one when john favreau made elf he consciously wanted to make a christmas movie that would be seen every year and he succeeded but i think it's uh, i think this these movies are most interesting when they're not the traditional ones that we expect simply because they make you think about the idea of a christmas film in a different way but if you if you look at that and you think about some of these films we asked before about what actors have been in more than one movie well here's alan rickman right he so he's oh yes he's in die hard and he's in love actually so there's one you wouldn't think of as a repeat christmas movie uh, actor but but he is nonetheless you're right i forgot about alan and uh, die hard was actually his very first movie so um he made his debut with a christmas film what enjoyable research you must have uh, you must have just loved putting this book together. How many films did you did you watch before? I mean, obviously, these are ones like you say in your book that, that you you sometimes return to year after year. So they're familiar to you. But um, and, and part of what I enjoyed reading your book was the fact that it, it exposed me to films that I, I was unaware of uh, as a Christmas film or otherwise. Um, the Apartment, Jack Lemon, a big Jack Lemon fan, but uh, hadn't seen it yet. How many did you go through and before you settled on, on these 30? And do you have a, uh, do you have a, uh, a second book planned? Uh, I, you know, I would love one day to do a second edition of this book and maybe you know, add another 10 or 15 or 20 movies. But uh, I think it's, you know, this book only came out two years ago, so it's a bit soon, but, you know, maybe in a few years. Um, but there, because there certainly were a few films that I really wanted to include that didn't make it, such as Bad Santa, which I wanted, but the publisher and TCM, you know, they wanted this book to be sort of family friendly. And <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say The Apartment is really <laughs> necessarily a family movie, <laughs> but, but it's not, you know, it's not like Bad Santa, which is a very dark comedy and, you know, pretty naughty, right? which I love about it, but it really should have been in there because it is definitely a Christmas movie and it, it takes the conventions to a very entertaining low level. And I mean that as a compliment. Uh, there was also a classic film from the 40s called It Happened on Fifth Avenue that I would have liked to have included. It's sort of a Capra-esque tale. How many did I see? I can't remember. I probably, oh, I, I probably looked at another 10 or 12 movies more other than the ones that were in here. The thing is, we we always knew we wanted it to be 30 movies. And a great many of these, I knew off right off the top of my head would be in there. So it was really only a matter of maybe filling in the last 10 or 12 slots, right? So there were some films that I just didn't make sense to even consider because there were others that I knew were much more in, in the running. But there, there were others that, that I considered, including some foreign films, but then we decided... Um, to keep it to English language. Otherwise, it just, you know, gets too sprawling and they're way, there, there are lots of films um, from other countries that could have been included if we'd gone there, but then it would really have to be 50, I think, at, at, or more. And yeah, I mean, there were some that surprised me too. One film that I'm very fond of is The Holly and the Ivy, which is a British film from 1952, Ralph Richardson and Celia Johnson. It's based on a play and 
Some people find it a little too theatrical. I don't know. I think it's actually quite cinematic in a subtle way. I actually did the commentary for the Blu-ray that came out a year or two ago. So it is available to, to see that way. And it's, a, it's just a lovely little piece of uh, British family life uh, circa the late 40s and uh, set all over the Christmas holiday and about a family, a sort of dysfunctional family finding their, their way again, which is a very common storytelling device in Christmas movies. Family dysfunction, Scrooge-like characters who redeem themselves. Yeah, really those, those are the most common then and now. Do you have a favorite, almost guilty pleasure Christmas movie that may not be one that's you know cinematically ideal or uh, a great story, but just something you like to watch around Christmas just because? You know, it's tough. I, I don't, I don't be, I don't mean this argumentatively, but I've I've never quite gone on with gone on board with the idea of a guilty pleasure. If it's a pleasure, it's a pleasure. Why well, feel guilty about it? Uh, but I I do know what you mean. I mean, one could say Bad Santa is a guilty pleasure, right? There is a movie, it, it's not really a guilty pleasure, but it's one that I, I hadn't seen when I was putting the book together, but I saw more recently called Cash on Demand, which is a, a Hammer film from the late 50s, early 60s with Peter Cushing. And it's, it's, he, he plays a bank manager who is the subject of a heist. And Andre Morel, as the bank robber, forces him to help him rob this bank. And it's sort of a very subtle uh, version of A Christmas Carol, very subtle. You really have to think about that connection as you're watching it, but then it does make sense as one. And it's a, it's a taut thriller with a sensitive performance by Peter Cushing, which is a little surprising if you know we only know him from the more macabre horror films. But it's one that is so it really is gripping and it's very much worth seeking out. So I would recommend people look for cash on demand. In your uh, backlot interview for TCM, uh, you say that uh, It's a Wonderful Life is your favorite Christmas film. That's got to be tough to pick one um, out of so many different genres, certain different eras. Uh, what is it about, I personally, uh, as far as the classic movie era, um, it's also one of my favorites. I'm a big Jimmy Stewart fan and it's one I can go back to every year um the scene where jimmy uh rags out uh zuzu's teacher i is has me in stitches every year no matter how many times i watch it what is it for you about that film that you <laughs> you enjoy so much that, that it keeps you coming back year after year and and for a guy like you who's written a book on the subject makes you honestly be able to say this is my favorite yeah um i know it's almost like the sort of easy answer because it's the almost cliche christmas movie it's a wonderful life but I think there's a pretty good reason that it's so beloved. And to me, I think it comes down to the fact that it really gives the audience a complete emotional experience. You know, I keep talking about the highs and the lows of the season. It's a Wonderful Life goes to the highest highs and the lowest lows, and the audience is wrapped throughout. And it's so easy to remember the joy of the movie, you know, and the ending, the most joyous ending in any movie you could, you could argue. But in order to get there, the audience and the characters, not just George Bailey, but, you know, his, his uncle and other characters, they go through some real trauma. And there's some real, you know, people break down and cry and they're at the end of the rope and they try to commit suicide. It's, it's, um, it really pulls you through the ringer. So the joy of the ending really feels, feels earned and deserved. So much so that 
we don't really seem to mind that uh, Mr. Potter gets away with it <laughs> and is not brought to justice. Um, I don't really know how they could have worked that in there, but um, it, it would have ruined the, the flow of, of the ending, I think. But it really, it also brings together all the themes I've talked about, the family dysfunction, family reconciliation, a Scrooge-like character in Mr. Potter. In fact, Lionel Barrymore actually was famous for playing Scrooge on the radio in A, um, a Christmas Carol for many years uh, before It's a Wonderful Life. And this movie sort of gives us a glimpse of what his Scrooge must have been like, at least before Scrooge is transformed. And it also gives us uh, Christmas through the prism of a child. It gives it to us through the prism of an adult who has to you know, deal with Christmas as a parent, who deals with Christmas in terms of its loneliness and its togetherness. All of it comes together in a way that doesn't feel like it's trying too hard to milk out our tears. And you really, you know, I got to give Frank Capra a lot of credit. He, he really knew how to blend those tones of comedy and drama, romance and cynicism, all of it. Yeah, and I think that resonates with, I mean, it's, it's a lesson um, that you can apply all year round to. You know, it's everybody has such an impact on everyone's life that uh, to take that one piece out, you can see the ripples just from the, you know, the pebble in the water. And it's, it's uh, truly a, an amazing film. And it's also really a perfect movie for the year 2020 because the, the, the alternate reality that George Bailey has to experience, which is presented as a nightmare, a film noir nightmare where he never existed and the world is a dark, awful, scary place. You know, we've just been through, we're still going through this pandemic and the 2020 feels like that. And yet there is a glimmer of light now with the vaccines on the horizon. And so hopefully we will all soon be getting our own version of the end of It's Wonderful Life. But boy, it's we've had to go through the ringer in real life to, to get that hopefully coming up. What are a few films that our audience may not have seen, but should out of the book? I'm going to start with Remember the Night, because if if anyone listening to this, if they see only one movie that they've never seen before from this book, make it remember the night. Because yeah, I've mentioned some others, Holly and the Ivy and um, Holiday Affair. They're, they're real good, but remember the night is particularly audience friendly and it'll tear at your heart unless you're made of stone. <laughs> I'll just put it like that. It's just a delightfully lovely romance but, uh, with um, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck was the first of four movies they made together just before Double Indemnity. And it's he's plays a prosecuting attorney who's prosecuting Barbara Stanwyck for shoplifting. And it's Christmas Eve and the trial is underway. Now the, the trial, there's a hearing and the judge sets the trial date for the first workday after the Christmas holiday, you know, 10 days away. And Barbara Stanwyck has no place to go for the holiday. She's gonna be in jail. So Fred McMurray, who's been prosecuting her, takes pity on her ends up driving her to Indiana to her parents' home because he's on his way there to go to his parents' home. The script has them spending the Christmas holiday together and they they fall in love. But what are they going to do about the fact that he's prosecuting her? So it, it's just a, a very heartwarming film that I would urge everyone to see. Other than that, I would say, um, if you've never seen Holiday Inn with uh, Fred Astaire and Bing Crosby, that's really a must-see. Um, the shop around the corner, 
And I think these others are pretty well known. Holiday Affair, I would definitely say is up there, which I already talked about. Shop around the corner. I was I was surprised that because I was going through just some some channels, I think two years ago and came across this. And it just it was one of those that just got my attention and and I thought was really an amazing film and surprised me. I hadn't seen it before, but it just uh, it was I thought it was really good. Directed by Ernst Lubitsch, one of the very best who ever worked in, in Hollywood and Jimmy Stewart and Margaret Sullivan. You know, it, it was remade as You've Got Mail. It was also remade as In the Good Old Summertime with Judy Garland, I think. Uh, but neither of them are as good as the original. And, you know, they're they're basically they they um, work in the same shop and hate each other. But they also are secretly pen pals with each other and fall in love that way without knowing who the other one is. And of course, the audience knows <laughs> throughout. And as they start to figure it out, it becomes really charming and, and heartwarming. But there again, that's another film that works in a, in a, a, a suicide attempt. So I'm sorry to bring things down, but you know, it's just you wouldn't think that that would be possible until you see how the movie does it. And then you're just sort of in awe of how this, the script was able to work that in, in a way that uh, didn't feel like it was over the top. So yeah, that's definitely worth seeking out. Beautiful film, Shop Around the Corner. Well, I can't think of a better way to celebrate Christmas than a conversation like this. So thank you again, Jeremy Arnold, for your time today. And we wish you and your family a happy and healthy holidays. Go out and find Jeremy's book, Christmas in the Movies, 30 Classics to Celebrate the Season for yourself or the movie lover on your list. And while you're at it, pick up his latest release from TCM, The Essentials Volume 2, 52 more must-see movies and why they matter. Jeremy's books are available at shop.tcm.com and at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, and everywhere fine titles are sold. And don't forget, through Christmas Eve, December 24th, you can enter to win both books simply by subscribing to the podcast. Find us on iTunes, YouTube, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or Spotify, and subscribe to be entered into the drawing. Check our Facebook page and Twitter on Christmas Day when we'll announce the winner. And make sure to follow Jeremy like we do on Twitter at, at JT underscore ARN and linked in the show notes. We're so grateful to Jeremy and all of our guests who've helped us get this show off the ground and made a challenging year so enjoyable for us. We'd like to thank Jeffrey Bassett, Dan Estes, Adrian DeGroote, Michael Goodnow, Rebecca Ewan, Scott Breitbarth and Amy Knickerbocker, Doug Fall, The Running Man Theater Company, and Sarah Summers. We hope you'll check out past shows and like, follow, and support all the talented people and groups we've had the pleasure of spending time with here on Heilman and Haver. And as we look toward the new year with new opportunities and new guests, we have a special announcement to make. There are simply so many interesting and talented people out there, we can't fit them all into two shows a month. So, beginning with our first episode of the new year, on January 8th, Heilman and Haver will be heard weekly. And to kick things off, we're pleased to welcome Jason Kint, theater person at heart and physician with the Actors Fund, serving New York's Broadway and theater community. As a representative from the Actors Fund, a national human services organization that fosters stability and resiliency and provides a safety net for performing arts and entertainment professionals for life, Jason will be speaking with us about the great work the organization is doing and about how the pandemic has impacted the theater and surrounding businesses in Manhattan. We hope that 2021 is a year of new beginnings for our local theatrical family and our fellow entertainers the world round. We're excited for what awaits Heilman and Haver in the new year and want to say a special thank you to all of our listeners. We're truly grateful for the time you spend with us and the kind words of support you've shared. We'd love to hear your ideas and what you'd like to hear in upcoming episodes. So contact us and join the conversation on Facebook and email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. And remember, you can find us on iTunes, YouTube, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. 
And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. Don't forget to join us on December 23rd on YouTube for a special Christmas edition of In The Mix and on January 8th for our first show of the new year. Here's to 2021 and until we're treading the boards together again, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Hayward.